We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us and that you care for us, that you died for us so that we could go to heaven because of your sacrifice and nothing else that's involved in it. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us in your son's name. Amen. All right. Last week we started in the battle of AI and we got a lot of the sidetracks on last week's study. So we kind of stopped in the middle of the whole battle plan. So I'm going to actually go back to verse 1 and read verse 1 up to where we left off and then a little further and we'll... So we kind of get that context of where we're at. And the Lord said to Joshua, Fear not, neither be you dismayed. Take all the men of people of war with you, and arise, go up to Ai. And see, I have given the, into your hand the king of Ai and his people in his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and to her king as you did unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall you take for a prey unto yourselves. Lay you an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose and all the people of the war to go up against Ai, and Joshua chose out 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city, but you be you all ready. And I and all the people that are with me will approach into the city, and it shall come to pass that when they come out against us, as at the first, that we will flee before them, for they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city, for they will say, they flee before us as, a, as the first. Therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up in ambush and seize upon the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it shall be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city afire, and according to the commandment of the Lord shall you do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them forth, and they went to lie in ambush and bowed between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai, but Joshua lodged that night among the people. And Joshua rose early in the morning and numbered the people and went up and the elders of, the, of Israel before the people of Ai. And all the people, even the people of war that were with him, went up and drew nigh and came before the city and pitched on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between them and Ai. And he took, them, took about 5,000 men and set them to lie in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, even all the hosts that was on the north of the city and their liars wait on the west side of the city, Joshua went up in the night into the midst of the valley. And it came to pass when the king of Ai saw it that he hastened and brought, rose early in the morning. The men of the city went out against Joshua, uh, Israel to do battle. He and his people at the time appointed before the plain, but he wist not that there were liars in ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and, Israel, and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way to, of the wilderness. And all the people that were in Ai were called together to pursue after them. And they pursued after Joshua and were drawn away from the city. And there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel that went not after Israel. And they left the city open and pursued after Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that he had in his hand toward the city. All right, so we got caught up here. So remember, they've, they've conquered Jericho with a mighty vehicle of victory. They walked around the city the seven times the city walls fell. They went in and conquered it. And then if you remember, Achan took gold and clothing out of the city of Jericho and hid it in his tent. And... 
the people of Israel decided, well, Ai is a really small town. We can take it. You don't need to send very many people. And Joshua made a very critical error. He did not go before God and say, God, what do you want me to do? He sent his people out, and they got their butts kicked <laughs> by the little town of Ai. And they, then we had the whole story of them finding Achan and Achan being, being uh, and his whole family being uh, killed because of his sin. And then we see the end of the chapter 7 that Joshua was being upset. God, why, why did you bring us over the, over the Jordan so that we could lose to our enemies? Now they're going to be emboldened and then, you know, basically saying we should, got, we should go back across the, <laughs> the Jordan, back to the other side where we are, have peace. And then God gives them this battle plan to, to fight and we left off with them basically sending the people around to the backside of Jericho. And we left off with them camped out on the hillside with the valley between them and Ai. And the king of Ai sees this whole army, and you've got to keep this in mind. Remember the size of their army, and God said, take all the men of war with you right now. 160,000 men of war are going out against this little little town. And other minus the 30,000 he's already sent behind them, so 130,000 men. So all along, if you're in the little town of Ai and you're looking across the valley, here's the, the other side of the, the valley covered with people. All right? Now, he's been emboldened. Joshua was correct. You know, they're going to be very bold because, God, we lost a battle. You told us we weren't going to lose a battle. We've lost a battle, and now our enemies are going to be bold. And you see the king of Ai coming out with his number of people, however many it was, probably nothing compared to 130,000 people arrayed against him, and he's ready to go chase after them and go to war. Yeah. In his mindset, it's okay, their God was mighty. He destroyed Israel. He, you know, he destroyed Egypt. He crossed the Red Sea. They destroyed the Ammonites and, uh, and all these people on the east side of the Jordan. They crossed the Jordan. They managed to destroy the God of you know, Jericho and their God, but our God won. <laughs> Our God defeated them, so he's, he's been emboldened, and he comes out to meet them. And you gotta, you got to picture this. This is a little tiny army coming out against a big army because they've already beat them once, and they think they're going to do it again. And we see in verse 15 that they went in, and then they pretended like they were beaten and started running. All right? You got to picture this. You know, when you really start picturing this, if you were to make a movie about this, it would be, you know, you would it wouldn't believe believe because you'd have this huge army, and this other one outnumbered one to ten, and they're and they're chasing the other army away. And when Joshua and Israel turn their back and start running away, the king of Ai, okay, all right, all the rest of you men, come on, we got them on the run again empties his city, and Bethel is emptied. Okay, Bethel is also going to be in trouble here. It's another small town, and they start chasing Joshua. And they start following him together, and it says that you know, in verse 16, and all the people that were in Ai were called together to pursue after them and pursued after Joshua and were drawn away from the city. And there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel. All right, they get everybody out, they get them away from the city, and, and Joshua turns around and God says, hold out your spear. Hold out the spear with your outstretched arm. 
We come to find out as we go on, that's a, that's a sign to the ones lying in wait. All right? So he stretches out his hand. And this also may give you a kind of a remembrance on one of the very first battles that the Israelites fought in the wilderness. And, jo and Moses had to raise his hands up. And when his hands were raised, Israel won. When he dropped his hands, Israel would lose. And we had Aaron and Joshua, Aaron and Caleb at that time were with Moses, and they held his hands up, and they, and they won the battle. So we have a picture of this. He's holding out his hand, and we're going to see that same kind of battle situation. It's definitely a trap. The Bible tells us God came up with it. Now the world will say Joshua came up with it, but God came up with it. Well, it's a, been a battle plan for many, many millennia. You know, flint, uh, pretend like you're being beat, draw the enemy out into where you want them, and then attack them from multiple sides. Well, it's always been done. It's been done for, for millennia. So the world will say Joshua came up with this. The Bible tells us that God did. So I'm going to believe the Bible and say that God came up with, with this battle plan. Now, it sounds like Joshua added this extra little thing of 5,000 men on the side that wasn't told to us earlier. And Joshua has sent 5,000 men on the side, so he's going to pinch them. Literally, he's pinching them in. He's going to have the ones that God told him behind the city come in, take the cities. They're going to be on, he's, they're going to cut their retreat. Joshua and the people are going to turn around, and then there's going to be people coming in. And in, the, in a valley, they're, they're conceivably against a river or mountainside to keep them being attacked on basically all sides. So, All right, verse 19. And the ambush arose quickly out of their place and ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand. And they entered into the city and they took it and they hastened to set it on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold, the smoke of the city ascended into heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that. And the people that fled into the wilderness turned back upon the pursuers. And when Joshua and all of Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke had descended, then they turned and again and they slew the men of Ai. And the, and the other issued out of the city against them so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that, on that side, and they smote them so that they let none of them remain or escape. And the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. All right, so... We try to picture this, you know, this big army is running away from a little army. <laughs> little army is emboldened and said, okay, we're going to keep chasing these guys. Army basically equivalent to whatever they're probably chasing out. 30,000 men go into the cities to set the city on fire. And now they're cutting off the escape. The enemy is now in the middle of the valley with Joshua on the highland coming to come down on them. The enemy coming down from them on the other side in the valley, and this is why they brought up, there's a valley here. They're in the middle of a valley. And then we got 5,000 men that are coming from the other side to push them, and eventually their only escape is to get down to a river, and they have no place to go. They are, they are pinched in. And there's not going to be much of a battle at that point. You know, the small army is now having people coming at them from all directions. And if you've ever watched any military movies, you've read any kind of military history, one of the worst places you want to be 
And you can imagine what it would be like to be attacked from every direction. Uh, this is AI, and their, and their king is in the middle of this valley being attacked from you know, every direction they look, there's the enemy coming at them. Sheer, complete terror in, in them. There's no place to go. They're not defensible. Their city is now gone. Their city, they don't even, even if they had won the battle, they don't have battle on that plate. They don't have the city to run back to because it's taken. So this is a masterful stroke on his place in, in one side, but it's God's plan. Joshua should learn now to go before God with each decision he has to make. And we're going to see many times in his life, he does not go to God to make decisions which is a picture of how most of us live our life so often. We don't go to God and ask God, what should I do in this situation, God? We go, well, this looks like a really good idea. I'll follow it. And then we get into it and we find out, oh, this was a terrible idea. God, how'd you let me get into this? And God's saying, well, you never asked. You never, you never asked. You never bothered to come and, and check it out with me. You just did. And this is one of the points we've been making in the book of Joshua we'll make frequently. God is interested in everything that we do and has a plan for us if we will just stop and seek his advice. We don't ask about getting into a situation. We always ask about how to get out. And usually in the process we'll blame God for being in the situation. God, I'm in the middle of the situation that I got into because I did what I thought I wanted to do and I didn't ask you. And now, God, how do I get out of this? Yeah, why, God, did you let this happen to me? Uh, God, I put the blinders on and the earmuffs on and I walked right in the middle of this trap and you just let me do it, God. You didn't, you didn't put a rope around me and tie my ankles to the, to, the, to the stake on the ground so that I couldn't move. You know, and, and God says, that's not my way of doing things. <laughs> yeah, you put all kinds of blocks in your way, but you still kept going. Uh, we're going to see Joshua do this on several occasions. He did it the first attack of Ai. He's going to do it in another chapter or two with a decision he doesn't, doesn't go before God on. And this is where, in one place, Joshua is very different from Moses. All the time in Moses, you see Moses falling, you know, First thing he did, people, great, falls on his face and, and worships God. You know, things are going right, falls on his face and worships. You know, we see Moses always falling on his face and seeking God. Joshua seems to be a little more, I can do things. And then, then turns to God. But, you know, it's also just like us. Too many times we do just that. God, I've got this. This is a little decision. This is a little battle. I can handle, I can handle this one, God. It is... You know, there's no, there's no problem with this enemy. And then we end up falling flat on our face. So here God gives him another plan that this one's quite sound military. People read this one and say, well, yeah, he could have come up with this one. Uh, when we talked about the Jericho battle plan, people looked at him and said, are you nuts? Your, your battle plan is to walk around the city and then go back to camp. And you're going to do this for six days. You're going to walk around the city and you're going to go back and camp. Oh, oh, you're going to walk around the city seven times, and then what? Go back to camp? You know, it was what they were expecting, kind of. You know, you, your pattern has been walk around the city, go back to camp. And then the walls fall, and they take the city. Here, we just see a, a whole different plan, and they says they killed all the men of Ai and Bethel. 
And it says they captured the king and brought him to Joshua. So in verse 24 it says, And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of the slain of the inhabitants of Ai in the field of the wilderness wherein they chased them, and they were all fallen by the sword until they were consumed, and that all of Israel returned unto Ai, smote it with the edge of the sword, and so it was that all that fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, even all the men of Ai. So the destruction of Ai was 12,000 people. Now remember what I said about king of Ai comes out, tells us with 12,000 men. How many people were set behind Ai? 30,000. I mean, even if they had wanted to, the 30,000 should have been able to take them. And there's 130,000 that Joshua had with him. These guys were totally outnumbered in a way that they should never have been bold enough to come out. More than 10 to 1 against them. And, you know, but this is what happens, and it's a picture of even for us in our Christian walk. With God on our side, we have no enemy that can stand against us. Satan cannot stand against us if we're doing what God wants us to do. He cannot stand against us. Why? Because he's standing against God. Now, and we look at some of these battles that have been out there. Abraham goes with 300 men and defeats five kings in their army to rescue Lot and Sodom. You know, when he first, when, when Lot moves outside Sodom. And so he goes in with a small group. You have Gideon going against it later on, going against uh, 30,000, you know, 100 and some thousand people with 30, uh, 300 men. God makes them kill themselves pretty much. In Hezekiah's day, there's, we've got the king that's surrounding Jerusalem, and he's going before God and saying, God, how can, we, how can we win this battle? And God goes, don't worry about it. I've won your battle. And he comes out, and one angel kills 175,000 Assyrians in one night. When God is on your side, nothing can stand against you, physical or spiritual. There's a saying, and I fully believe it, that as long as you're, God has a plan for you, you are invincible. You cannot be killed until God says it's time to go home. And that doesn't mean do stupid things, because you might find your time is sooner than you think it is. But by the same token, if you're ministering to God, and God says, I want you in this place, it doesn't matter how dangerous it is, or how bad it is, or how deadly it is. It's where he wants you and you'll be protected. He could put you in the middle of the worst neighborhood of the worst city in the world and say, this is where I want you to minister and you'll be perfectly safe. One of the things that blew the minds of the ancient Romans were they would, plague would break out in a city and they would evacuate the Roman army around it and circle the city so nobody would you know, run out and get, you know, spread the plague. And then they would go, they would send back reports along the lines of, we've totally evacuated the city except for these really crazy religious people who won't leave the city because they want to take care of the people. And they, go, and they will go, they're followers of the, of, of the Jewish cult, the way, you know, talking about Christians. Christians would stay in these cities to minister to people. And it just blew the minds of these guys, you know, because you didn't help the weak. You didn't, you know, the Romans didn't help you. If you got, if you were a soldier in the Roman army and you got severely injured, they would leave you wherever you were at, and you had, if you were strong enough to make it back home, good. If you weren't, who cares? You were too weak to live. That was their mentality. And yet Christians are going and helping people who are dying. 
It, it just blew their minds. Why? Because they understood. I'm ministering for God, and my life really doesn't mean anything. And we need to have that mentality. If we're ministering for God, what is our life if somebody gets saved? You know, and it comes down to, the, on my wall in the office, there's a, there's a piece of paper that says, what is the value of one soul? And we need to really start thinking about that. What is the value of one soul that's lost? What are we willing to give up? Would we give up our life if they were to get saved? Paul said, you know, God, if, it was, if, the, if the nation of Israel could, would go to heaven by it, I would go to hell. Moses said the same thing to God. God, you know, keep the people with you and take me to hell. If that's the choice, keep the, send, take them and I'll, and I'll take their place. The love of us. How many of us have that kind of love for the lost world? God, I'm willing to do whatever it takes if somebody gets saved. Most Christians don't have that attitude. Don't have that attitude of, I want to see people go to heaven. Well, I would want them to go to heaven, but I don't think I could say I would want to go to hell. I don't know that I'm there either, so don't get me wrong. Now, in most cases, I don't think, I think they knew that it would not happen, but it also shows, though, their heart. God, I am willing to do whatever it takes for somebody to get saved. Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs is full of people that were willing to give their life as a witness so that people could get saved. And the, reason they're, and the reason they're in the book is because people got saved because of their sacrifice. Well, because I would do that because I would know I would go to heaven, but I wouldn't want to say yeah. I would go to hell. No. Well, I'm saying Paul and Moses were an extreme case, yeah. but that was their love for their people. Yeah. And for me, I, I would probably be willing to do that for certain people that I really love. You know, say, God, if, it, if you would take all of them, and I was guaranteed, then take me and, and keep them. That's where ultimate love comes in. Now, I'm oh, not there yet. Take them, but keep me, but then bring me up to heaven. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but not. I, I am not there yet myself, but you know, the idea on this is, are we willing to listen to God, and, and what price are we willing to pay for, for a lost person to come to Christ? You know, and this is something we all need to kind of think about. If we truly understand the awfulness of hell, it should motivate us in a great way. Not to go to hell. And well, still for ourselves, for ourselves, but yeah. to to it would motivate us to keep others from going there. I will tell you right now, I do not wish hell on anybody. Now, I don't have any enemies, but even if I did, I wouldn't want to see an enemy go to hell because of how awful hell. Yeah is. It's not something I want to see anybody to go. I, even if it's somebody I don't like, I don't want to see them go there. It's eternal punishment that is extreme punishment. Yeah. If it was nothing but the conscience burning in you for all of eternity, that would be bad enough. But God says it's at a fire and it's a smoke and your conscience will be be there and they will know what they have lost and be guilty and know that they deserve what they're getting and people are basing their whole desire to go to heaven on the things they can do and God says it's not enough 
You know, here we look at them. They're saying, God, we're doing these things. You know, the Jews still to this day have this attitude, God, we're doing these things for you. We're doing things for you to earn our salvation. The sad thing, there are so many people that say they're Christians that are doing the same thing. They're not putting their whole faith and trust in Jesus. They're saying, God, look at all these things I'm doing. I, I go to church. I read my Bible. I, I witness uh, at least a couple of times a week. I, I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't, I don't, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I'm, not, I'm wearing the right clothes. I'm, I'm talking to the right people. I'm reading, you know. And they have their little checklist and saying, God, here's my list. I'm, I'm doing all these things for you. If it's anything plus Jesus, it's not going to get you to heaven. And we've got to understand it's all about him. Joshua forgot to go to God and say, God, what's your game plan for this next time? And they got their butts kicked. He goes to God and he gets a, it gets a plan that now makes it turn around and, and they lose their lives. Ai and Bethel lose their lives because God makes the victory. The good news for us, though, is when we fail and we do, God redeems it and brings victory back to us when we turn to him just as he did to, to, the, to Joshua and the people. Joshua goes and falls down on his face, complains to God, and God says, what are you on your face for? You, you messed up. You're sin in the camp. Go, go take care of the sin, and then I'll give you your victory. God says the same thing to us. You know, clean up your life, repent, repent, and I'll give you the victory. Follow me. And we, we want to look at this, and it says they, they put to death 12,000 people that day. That's quite, a, that's quite a lot of people dying. Jericho was a much larger city. Many more died in Jericho. But God says, I'm giving you the victory. And no more of the people are going to look and say, oh, you're, you're easy pickings because now you've defeated, you're, now you've defeated two, you know, three cities. Let's see. Verse 20. Where did I leave? I don't think there were. I got one that interesting word, Bethel. I used to do, I did a study on Bethel. I mean, House of God or Church of God? House of God. House of God. Beth, House, oh, Beth, God. Bethel, House of God, yeah. 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 A town called that in Washington. Bethel, oh, right. House of God, they had about 20 churches. Okay, 26. And Joshua drew not back his hand back wherewith he stretched out the spear until it was utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoils of the city Israel took for the prey for unto themselves, according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. And Joshua burnt Ai and made it a heap forever, even a desolation unto this day. And the king of Ai, he hung on the tree until evening tide. And as soon as the sun went down, Joshua commanded that they should take down his carcass from the tree and cast it at the entering of the gate, of the city and raise upon it a great heap of stones that remain unto this day. All right, so they killed all the men. And this time the rule was that they could keep the cattle and the gold and the silver and, and the spoils. And remember, we've talked about this. The spoils of war were how the, how the armies were paid back then. You did not have a standing army paid out of taxes. You, would, you, you got everybody gathered up for war. And if you, if you lived through the battle, you got to take all the treasure off the off the battlefield or the cities or whatever, whatever you found, it was yours to keep. And so this time they get to keep whatever they found in the cities. They get to keep whatever they find on the soldiers. They get to keep the weapons. They get to keep the, 
armor. They get to keep the, any gold and silver that they find on them. They get to keep all the gold and silver in the city. And in this case, they also get to keep the, ca the cattle. Big difference from it. And remember what we said when we talked about the Battle of Jericho. God asks for the first fruits offering for people. Jericho was the first fruits of the, new land, new, the promised land being given to them. And God says, all of that belongs to me. Later on, when they start planting their fields, God says, I want the first fruits of your harvest. Your first, your first day, your first week, go to God. And that's quite a, quite a trusting thing when you're an agricultural uh, country because to give God the first fruit, number one, it's the only one that you know you've got. After that, you know, you pick, the, you pick that first fruit before the next buds produce fruit. You might have a storm come through. You might have hailstorm. You might, you might, anything could happen to lose that next part of your harvest. The second harvest is usually better than the first harvest, but you're never guaranteed that second harvest as a farmer. And God says, I want the first. I want it smaller than the second, and, and but I want the first, and you're showing my, your faith. And the way many Christians have applied that is when they get a new job or, or an increase in their pay, they'll give God that first extra amount that, that they get that, and just say, God, it's yours, thank you. Now, is it a mandatory? Nope, we're not under the law. <laughs> but it's how that's applied in many cases. And so they're out there now in AI getting their reward. And it was very profitable to go to war. And in this case, remember the entire, all the men of war are out there this time. So everybody's going to get a little bit from this battle. And Joshua takes the king and he kills him. And he hangs him on a tree. And, you know, this idea of hanging somebody was to put him on display. We have conquered him. We have taken him out. And... For the Jews, they were told that no one was to hang on, hang on a tree overnight. The bodies were to always be cut down before the nighttime, which is part of what in Jesus, when the disciples went to take Jesus' body and the, and the Pharisees and the scribes before that said, you know, we, we need him taken down. Tomorrow is Passover. We, can't, we cannot have the land defiled. We need him off the cross by sunset. And... Because the Jews normally left the people on a cross for upward of a week, torturing them on a cross. And most people did not die very quick on a cross. It was a horrible, horrible way of dying. You would stay there for a week, two weeks, until you finally just got so exhausted you, you hung there and couldn't breathe anymore. And fluid would fill your lungs and you literally drown in your own blood and your own, and your own fluids. And so when you went on a cross, you, you died of a drowning death, usually. And so they went to, they went to Jesus and they found that he was already dead, which was an amazing, amazing thing because people didn't die that fast. But Jesus had already spent all night in Gethsemane where blood came out of his pores because of the pressure he was on. He had been beat with the, the Roman flagellum so that he was barely alive in the first place. Uh, he had to carry the cross. They put a crown of thorns on his head, which made him bleed even more. The soldiers, even before they put him on the cross, put a hit bag over his face and started beating on him and saying, "Tell you know, you're a prophet. Tell us who's hitting you." You know, he was 
virtually beat to death before he even went and got scourged. Then he got scourged, which took you to within an inch of your life. Then they put him on a cross. And they nailed him on, which was unusual, because normally they just tied you to the cross. You know, the, the nailing you know, to the cross went for the worst of the worst uh, offenders. And Jesus went through all of that for us. And then he died within five hours, of being, uh, with less than six hours of being put on the cross. And why? All for us. The penalty, penalty he paid for us. But it was the idea that the Jews went to him and said, these bodies have to be taken off the cross before Passover because it goes to their law. You couldn't, defile, you couldn't defile your land with people hanging on the cross. And so here they took the man off the, off the hanging, off a cross, off a hanging. We don't really know on exactly how they hung him on this one. And then they buried him under rocks at the entrance of Ai, which is burnt. Now, they did not destroy every city they conquered. Now, so far we're seeing two cities destroyed. We see God destroying Jerusalem and them coming in, and, uh, Jerusalem, Jericho, and them coming in and destroying everything else. And Ai, they burned to the ground and destroyed. Many of the cities they're going to keep because God says you're going to dwell in cities you did not build. You're going to have orchards you did not plant. And all of this was the promise of coming into the promised land that they were going to have instant civilization basically and what do they do the first two places they destroyed <laughs> they destroy all the way to the ground and uh, but that's God's plan for this it says this is what you're going to do you're going to kill the people and remember why are they to kill all the people it's because of the sin of Canaan and all of that area they are so sinful to God saying you are my instrument of judgment upon these people. Nine hundred, a thousand years later, Assyria is going to be coming into the North Kingdom, being God's instrument against the sin of his northern kingdoms. And Babylon later on is going to be the instrument that comes and judges Jerusalem. God is not above using nations to punish other uh, people's sins which is something we need to be careful of in America. We need to be praying for revival in America because God is not beyond using other nations to punish America for our sins. And it's coming. If we don't repent, this country does not repent and have a great revival with all the babies we murder every year, all the homosexuality we allow going on, all the fornication that we allow to go on, God is going to say judgment is coming because of how evil things are getting. And we need, to be, we need to be ready. And we as Christians need to be ready for persecution because it's an amazing thing that America has not had persecution for Christians. It all started because we started out on the right reasons. We started out as a country founded on God's laws and his mor morality looking to evangelize the world. And you know, for... Almost 250 years, America has been the greatest evangelistic tool for Christianity. We have sent missionaries all around the world. We have supported missionaries. And in the last 10 or 15 years, more missionaries are coming to America than anywhere else in the, in, in the world right now. You know, that's kind of a sad thing to think of. You go down any, any town in, in America and there's churches everywhere, missionaries are coming to us to bring Christianity to them back to America. 
because of how far we've gone downhill from our roots. And in, if you've done any searching for churches, you know how hard it is sometimes to find a decent church out there. You know, there are a lot of churches that aren't teaching God's word. There's a lot of churches that aren't standing on God's word and teaching true doctrine, which is why we have so many people coming to America to give, to try to bring Christianity to, to America. And unfortunately, the Christianity we have in America in many churches is not Christianity. You know, and they don't believe God's word. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's Jesus and all these good works. Jesus, you know, and sometimes it's not even Jesus in some of the churches. You know, they might, if you're lucky, in some churches read a Bible verse and then talk about some good feeling stuff. And that's, and that's their teachings. But, you know, they don't bring into God's word and say, this is what you're looking for. God has put us in a place where we will battle where we will be battled, and it takes him to be victorious in all of this. Verse 30, Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, and Moses, as Moses the servant of God commanded the children of Israel, as it was written in the book of the law of Moses, the, an altar of whole stones over which no man had lift up an iron, and they offered thereon burnt sacrifices unto the Lord and scattered and sacrificed peace offerings, and he wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And all, the ch all of Israel and their elders and their officers and their judges stood on the side of the ark and on the side before the priest of the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant and the Lord, as well as the strangers, as, as well as those that were born among them, half of them over against Mount Giazim and half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded them, before, and they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and curses, according to all that was written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of, of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read not before the congregation of Israel, with all the women and the little ones and, and the strangers that were conversant among them. So after this victory, they've had this great victory. The next day, they build an altar. And this is first re reference of Joshua building an altar. And, and they build an altar. And you notice that he says they built it according to the law of Moses. And what did the law of Moses say? It said that no iron should, should touch the, the stones. It should be built out of whole stones. No, not shaped in any way, shape, or form is what it said in the law. And so this is what they do. And this is Exodus 20 uh, that they talk about the fact that this altar cannot be carved. And it says they build this altar and they start making sacrifices. And we think about this, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now most of, let's see, two or three people were here back in the days when we studied Leviticus. Burnt offerings were offered by the Levites. The Levites would uh, skin the animal that was being offered. They got to keep the skin, and then they would burn the entire animal upon the altar. Okay, burnt offering. The burnt offering represented total dedication of the individual to the person. God, I'm giving myself completely over to you, and rather you burning me up, I'm using this 
this animal as the symbol of my total dedication. I'm burning this whole animal to you, and you get to keep me in, and use me as your servant. That is what the burnt offering represented. Now, for us as Gentiles, and we cover this, and we're not going to cover it a lot on this one, we always think of it's just one big sac sacrifice that gets ever done. There are five different sacrifices that the Jewish people committed. The burnt sacrifice is one of them. It shows total dedication. The Thanksgiving offering was another one. And it was kind of an interesting offering because you took your, your great big animal, usually, usually the, the ox or the, or the cow, and you basically cut it up. The priest got a big shoulder of it that belonged to him. He got to keep it, and he had, he had to eat it within three days just like you did. God would get all the inner, inner organs and parts and the fat and, and the head, and it was burnt on the offering uh, on the altar. You were given back half of your offering. Now, if you had a big cow, that meant you were given half a, a full side of beef or a full side of ox, whatever you were offering, and you had to eat it within three days. So guess what you ended up doing? You had a party with all your friends because you had to eat this thing in three days. And basically, we brought that out. The, guy that, the one guy that, that I listened to on the radio, he, go, he called it having a party with God. You know, you had your party with God. You gave God his part, you gave the priest his part, and then you had your part that God gave back to you to have a big party with your people, you know, your friends, you know. And, and here's what they're doing. Offering burnt offerings. God, we're totally dedicating ourselves to you. And they're offering the Thanksgiving offering. God, we are thanking you for this, and we want to just show you our thanks, and we're going to have this party. We're giving you your part, God. You've got all, all the parts you asked for. The priest got his reward. And we're going we're gonna to have our family gather with us and we're going to praise you for, and, and give thanks to you. But I bring this all up because, you know, again, I know how quickly we forget about the fact that there's all these different offerings going on. And a lot of people will have problems in the millennial kingdom when the temple is, is back into full operation for a thousand years. There are sacrifices going on. You will not have the sin offering. Because there is no covering for sin because Jesus was the sin offering. But you will have the burnt offering and the thanksgiving offering because those are the ones that celebrate our relationship with God. Any, do you have a question? Okay. So here they are. They're on this time and they're offering sacrifices. God has just given them a great victory. And they're having sacrifices. And this is the first time we've seen sacrifices in the book of Joshua. All right, uh, we saw them come across the, uh, the Jordan River. And remember, what was the first thing they did when they crossed the River Jordan? Uh, they took and they piled the stones. And what else? They had to circum they circumcised all the males. So they come across, they're, they're in enemy territory, and they make themselves totally defenseless. And set themselves up for, because they wanted to go follow God. And so in many ways, Joshua is following God in, in many ways, short of going before God and asking him what to do all the time. 
And we're going to see this problem on a, on a few other places with Joshua is that he d doesn't ask God for direction. And then he, he sets up and they're worshiping and he sets half the people over toward Gerizim and half of them on Ebal. And if we remember the Deuteronomy study, God says, these are the two hills that you're going to stand upon and worship God between. And they're worshiping God between the two hills. <laughs> and they're not all the way on Gerizim because they haven't taken it yet, but they're toward Gerizim. And so over against the mountain. And they're worshiping God. But you know, one of the things that I see in verse 32, Joshua takes the time to write the law, a copy of the law of Moses, on the stones that are on the altar, next to the altar. This does not mean just the Ten Commandments. The 650 vows? All of the book, all of the law of Moses, the whole Pentateuch. I have a feeling that Joshua did not do this by himself. Uh, otherwise, they would have been there for a very long time. And then, after they had etched all the laws on the stone, they'd had their altar. Then, after the sacrifices, in verse 34, it says, And afterwards he read all the laws, words of the law and blessings and cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of, Moses, of, the, of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua read, not before the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. Their worship service involved standing all day, listening to the Pentateuch being read to them. And we think we sometimes have long services. Can you imagine your service is to stand. And this is one of the things the Jewish people, the congregation, the people learning stood, the teacher sat. <laughs> Joshua reads the entire first five books of our Bible. He would have been sitting. He's a teacher. He's a teacher. He would have been sitting. Now he might have stood because of the, where they're at so he could be seen. But in a Jewish synagogue and, and Jewish teaching and all of those things, the teacher sat and the people stood in reverence to the teacher. He reads the entire Pentateuch. Ezekiel in, uh, in Ezra's day, when they build Jerusalem and they get ready to dedicate the temple, they do the same thing. The people are gathered around the temple and in this case, they build a platform, and he stands on the platform so everybody can see him. And it says, from the morning to the evening, he read the law of Moses. Well, it says, morning to noon, he read the, the law of Moses, and then they expounded upon him. They had preaching from noon to sunset. <laughs> Just a short service. <laughs> Just a short, short service. Gather at 6 o'clock in the morning and get done at 6 o'clock at night. You could really sleep and stand <laughs> <laughs> You better stay awake anyway. But how important was the law? Remember, we're only a few weeks from Moses having done this already. 
Remember what we said when we were doing the book of Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy was a long message from Moses. He delivered the entire book of Deuteronomy in a day to the people. All right? How long did we take going through Deuteronomy? A little over a year, but that, I was expounding upon Deuteronomy. Moses was just teaching them everything that they had learned. In this case, they're reading the law. And again, they've only been here a couple weeks, maybe a couple months maximum in the, in the promised land. And Moses had ended his life by giving them a recap of the law. Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. So here they are just a couple months after that. And Joshua is going, okay, here's the law. <laughs> We're going to give it back to you. Specifically reading, what did he specifically say? The curses and the blessings. Because when Moses gave the people the law, he says, if you obey God, this is what God's going to do for you. All these blessings. He goes, if you don't want these blessings, you just disobey God and he'll give you all these curses. Joshua is reminding them. And they just had this object lesson with Achan. Achan disobeyed God. And what did it mean? Close to 100 people lost their life in the first battle of Ai because they had been disobedience in the camp, disobedience to God's word, and death followed. Sin always produces death. What's really sad is when sin produces death, and it's not really their fault. For, for fathers, and when we're a father, a husband and a father, if we're disobedient or we allow sin in our family, the family will suffer because of our not dealing with it as fathers. The government is supposed to deal with sin. Okay, that's their job. They have two jobs, protect the nation and deal with evil and protect from evil. In our day and age, they're not doing a real good job, especially on the second, and they're only doing a so-so job on the first. But their job, and if not, they're going to be accountable. We need to keep in mind, God has a system in place that when we do not obey his words and we sin, death is the result. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And here we see death. The Canaanites are going to start facing death because of their sin. And it tells us that they've been... 430 years in their way that God's been patient before he's brought their judgment upon them. You know, how patient is God? You know, it's kind of amazing sometimes how patient God is. And I praise God that he's patient with me because I am so thick-headed and stubborn that he hasn't just wiped me out. You know, he is patient. He works with us. He works with nations. He works with people because of his great love and mercy and his patience. And it says they read all of the law. They reviewed the law with, with the people. And it says here, with all the men, women, and children. And then as a little tag on, and all the strangers that were with them that, were, that had come out of Egypt that weren't Jews. And it said that a mixed multitude came out with the Israelites. There were certain... Egyptians who said, your God is so strong, we want to follow your God, and we're going to go with you when you leave. 
because your God is so powerful, we want to follow him. Who's another setup that's going to be in this? Rahab and her family. You know, she's a follower of God at this point, saying, hey, your God is so strong, we know he's going to get, we know you're going to have victory because of your God, and I want to be the follower of your God. And we're going to see other people that keep gathering into this. You know, it's an amazing thing that the Jews look down on the Gentiles, but God keeps bringing Gentiles into the Jewish people. Even before all of this, he's bringing Gentiles into the, into the family. All through the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he talks about how the Gentiles are going to be part of his kingdom. And yet the Jews, even to this day, don't really want to see Gentiles being part of the kingdom. And God kept saying, the whole world, I love the world. It's not just you. You know, Abraham, I chose Abraham, but it's not just you that I'm trying to reach. And remember the phrase in, in Deuteronomy became, one law shall be to the Jew and to the stranger among you. You know, they could always go in. The, God's plan was always that Gentiles could come into the temple and make sacrifices to God. And yet, when they built the temples, there were great big signs saying no Gentiles beyond this point. They wouldn't let Gentiles go in to worship unless they became proselytes. They had to become a Jew before they could come in to worship. And that was never what God said. And yet that's how they practiced it. And God's been so patient with the Jewish people. God's patience is so wonderful. And his deliverance when he moves is so wonderful as we see him move, move around and, and deliver. But his goal is that all will come to him. But he's never going to make anybody come to him. Yeah. And you've got to think, you're, there's a lot of people out there, and I've heard this, and, and people, well, if God wants everybody into heaven, he'll just make everybody come to heaven. Well, you know, heaven wouldn't be heaven if God made everybody go to heaven. Because if somebody doesn't want to be in God's presence, even heaven would not be a great place for them. Yeah. How many of us Christians love coming to church and worshiping God and listening to God's word? Did we want to do that before we became a Christian? <laughs> Not usually. We used to go, well, I'm tried reading, you know, how many times you heard somebody go, well, I used to try to read my Bible, and it never makes any sense. Maybe you've even said that, you know. Then you got saved, and all of a sudden, the Bible makes sense because God is now in you. I used to go to church, but man, it was so boring. You know, all they did was sing, and this guy stood up in the front and spoke at us for a little while, and, and then we went home. And then you get saved, and it's like, just can't wait to go worship God in that singing and, and hearing what the pastor is going to say to edify us and get, then get home that week and read my Bible. What changes? God in us. God changing us. Before we're saved, nothing, nothing we want to do with God. And if we try to... It's just a formality and it's boring. Can you imagine if God says, okay, you, you didn't want anything to do with me in your entire life on earth, but I'm going to bring you up and so you can worship and, and listen to preaching all, for all of eternity. That would not be heaven for most, most people that don't know God. Some Christians don't think it would be heaven. Uh, it would be heaven to me. But, you know, we want to keep this in mind on how God's going. And let's go ahead and end with prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for, you are the master of deliverance. You are the God that keeps us. You are the one that, that will keep us and wants to see others. 
Lord, we ask that you put in our heart a burning desire to witness and to draw people into the kingdom. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.